You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast, episode number 143, on the book of Esther. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me tonight are Leah Flanagan and Ilea Grubbs. Welcome. Hi. Hello. We're going to go around and do our introductions first, like we always do. Let's start with Ilea. Hi, my name is Ilea Danner Grubbs. I live in Trustville, Alabama, uh, with my husband and my two young children. And I homeschool, and that's pretty much all I'm doing these days, just waiting for my turn to have a vaccine. And uh, Oh, and fostering puppies, apparently that is a thing that I do now. So we have uh, currently a nursing mama and two puppies that we are caring for until they're big enough to be uh, adopted out. So that's our uh, adventure during the uh, late months of the pandemic. So cute. (laughs) It's so cute. I meant to ask you about the puppies before, and I forgot. Um, Leah, how about you? Hi, I'm Leah Flanagan. Uh, I have a master's degree in early modern European history from Loyola University in Chicago, Um, but I'm currently living in St. Paul, Minnesota with my husband and our two adorably monstrous cats. Uh, So no puppies on our end, just two very spoiled kitties who run the household. Thanks. And I'm Katie Grubbs. And I live in uh, Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our four children. I am adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and, a Bible, and I'm a Bible study teacher at our church. And um, that is a perfect uh, segue into the first thing that I wanted to address tonight, which is why are we talking about Esther? Um, so I was asked by our women's pastor uh, towards the end of the fall if I would teach the book of Esther this spring. And I was not excited about it. Um, I thought this has been done a million times. Why are we doing this again? But uh, she said it hadn't been taught at our church in, at our church in many years and asked if I would do it. And so I kind of took it on reluctantly, but in the end have absolutely uh, adored uh, studying this book to teach it and then teaching it to our ladies at church. Um, I kind of delved really deeply into historical context and um, realized that there's so much back of this book that often never gets taught and it's been a real pleasure. Um, and just this week finished teaching a nine week class. So uh, I kind of have all that in the forefront of my brain and I'm really excited to talk about it tonight. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in to our knowing section. And before we kind of do some summary and context and things like that, I wanted to ask uh, a little bit of the, the personal background. So um, let's go around and, and kind of think through what have you been taught about Esther in the past? Um, and how has that kind of made you regard this book? Or is it something that you've not really spent much time with? Um, what are your experiences with Esther in the past? Leah, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I mean, I think like all evangelical Christian girls, I was raised to admire Esther. Uh, I've, of course, 
seen the VeggieTales film. <laughs> uh, I I actually own One Night with the King. Um, that is a guilty pleasure watch, if ever there was one. That's um, awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Uh, so I I did grow up just really loving on Esther and loving the story. Um, you know, when I was going to Bible college, I studied it in class. Uh, and then for the last few years, I kind of stepped away from it. Uh, I was more interested in other aspects of theology and kind of growing more into my feminism uh, and learning more about that side of my faith. So now this kind of gave me an excuse to come back to Esther with maybe more of an adult lens uh, and see it in some new ways that I hadn't considered before. Thanks so much. Ailea, how about you? Yeah, I, uh, I've studied this book in depth a couple of times, um, notably always with groups of women. Um, I did the Beth Moore study um, on Esther a couple of years ago. Uh, well, it was a while ago. It was when it came out, so it was over 10 years ago. Um, but I, I loved it. Um, she does a really good um, study on it. And then a few years after that, I did with a different group of women, um, the precept study on it um, that you know, K. Arthur's precepts class. Um, and that was really great. That was a really in-depth, you know, verse by verse study of it. Um, I taught it in my classroom um, when I was teaching third grade as part of our Bible curriculum every year. And now um, I read it to my kids because we uh, do a little private family observation of Purim every year and we read through the um, the whole book and then we, we make commentation and eat cookies and um so, yeah, so I, I've I've enjoyed it, you know, as an adult, you know, as a kid, like you said, I think I was raised to admire her. And obviously, um, as a evangelical young lady was taught to admire her as one of the two women who gets a book to themselves. <laughs> um, but uh, but as an adult, I've really come to appreciate it for its part in the history of the the Bible story, especially in the Old Testament and and all that. Thanks. Um, I actually don't, for having grown up, you know, kind of Southern Baptist, I don't remember, I know that I would probably got this Bible story when I was a kid at church, but I don't remember it. I don't remember, you know, learning it a lot. I, uh, we probably, you know, got it in isolation. Um, and I have, I've had a lot more interactions with it as a grown up, though not, I've never done a, a kind of in-depth study of this book as a student. Um, so I didn't come to it in depth until I was getting ready to teach it this year. But I do remember seeing Esther mentioned at various places. And I remember being frustrated because in a couple of different cases, I had seen Esther kind of um, lauded in certain complementarian spheres for being uh, a, a, quite a submissive wife because of the way mm -hmm. she talked to the king. And I remember thinking the, as soon as I, and I mean, I, I had not done any kind of end up study. I knew the basics of the other story. And I remember thinking that's completely stupid because what she does is literally illegal. So mm -hmm. that's no, just no, I it, like the rhetoric is submissive. The actions are not. And so to me, I remember getting real, real frustrated by that and thinking, that's that's either a willful misreading of the story or that's just really, really ignorant. Um, and that that's kind of, you know, that was the most recent contact I'd had with thinking about Esther before I got ready to teach this particular class. And so I kind of came to it to some degree with 
fresh eyes just because it had been, I hadn't really ever delved into it. And so um, I don't know if that made me even more careful or even more eager to delve into the details, but I really, um, I, I want to, and I knew that there had to be, I knew that there was this big historical context behind it that never really gets talked about. And that's the other reason that I wanted to do this episode is because Esther is pretty much exclusively taught to women, um, which, you know, okay, it's named after a woman, but so is Ruth. And you'll hear sermons on Ruth from the pulpit in churches. I have, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like I've heard, I've heard Ruth preached about or taught about to mixed audiences of mm-hmm. men and women. I've never heard that happen with Esther. Never yeah, once. Same, same. Um, yeah. And I mean, and there are problematic aspects about this text that we're going to get into later, things that make it unappealing to a minister. Um, it's not sweet, like the, in the ways that the Ruth story is kind of sweet. Um, for one thing, there's no mass killing in the Ruth story. So there's that, um, <laughs> you know, going for it. But, um, but it's, yeah, it, it just, I, I wanted to give some, some time to Esther because it doesn't get a lot of time, um, except in women's Bible study. So, um, well, let's kind of move into our knowing section, uh, proper with some facts and listeners. I'm going to apologize in advance if this gets a little bit technical, but we wanted to make sure that we give um, lots of really good information about Esther and don't just talk about the surface plot, um, but get in deep too, which I mean, and Leah's going to give us a very thorough, thorough plot summary too, just in case you're not familiar with the book of Esther. But before that, we're going to talk through um, some background. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to um, talk through some things, uh, just basics about this book that are useful to know that you're probably not going to see in a Bible study you'd buy in a store. You might, but probably not, um, not in a kind of popular um, Bible study. So um, the book of Esther is known in Hebrew as Megillot Esther. I have no idea if I'm saying that first word right. Um, And we don't know who wrote the book. Um, The Talmud says it was written by, quote, the men of the great synagogue, which um, I'm assuming were priests, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus and also church father Clement of Alexandria, they both thought that Mordecai wrote it himself, which is an interesting theory. I think the last three verses, two or three verses of the book, maybe argue for Mordecai as the author because they talk about how fantastic he is. Uh-huh. So, you know, maybe he's talking himself up. Um, nobody really knows. But what you can tell just by reading it is that it was almost certainly a Jew who was living under Persian rule in exile and who was familiar with the city of Susa and the Persian court. Because you can see all those cues, all those those kind of clues in the writing. So we don't know if it was Mordecai or who it was. But that's kind of the prevailing idea of what type of person wrote this book. Um, dates are also strange. Um, opinions vary on both when these events happened and when this book was written. Um, one of the reasons that opinions vary on when these events happened is in part, well, and let me back up, uh, Lots of people think this book is not actually even true, which is another problem. Um, There are a lot of scholars that assume this book is like historical fiction or a myth, um, that it's an ideological book, meaning that it was written purely to explain why Purim is a thing. Why do we celebrate this holiday? Um, So, you know, to even talk about dates, you have to assume that it's at least partially true. Right. Um, But if you do, opinions still vary because there was more than one king whose name could be translated Ahasuerus, which is what it says in most translations of the Bible that, um, that I've read. Um, some people think it's Xerxes and uh, Xerxes the first um, and Karen Jobes, my favorite commentator who I'm going to mention uh, a good bit tonight. She, she lands on that. It's Xerxes. Some people think that it was Artaxerxes 
uh, his son. So opinions vary widely um, on who this king is, if he was a real king, which king, they're still not sure. Um, so Cyrus made his decree, which allowed the Jews to return to the land in 539 BC. That is known. And so Job says, if this is Xerxes, these events are supposed to be happening about 50 years later, which would be about 489 BC ish. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a ballpark. Um, a different scholar, Joyce Baldwin, says late 5th or early 4th century B.C. Uh, for when it was written, which would be less than 100 years after the events might have happened for several different reasons. The knowledge of Susa and the palace that this writer puts in fits archaeological evidence. Um, there's lots of Persian loan words in this text, but almost no Greek words, which suggests it was written before Alexander the Great conquered Persia and Greek became the main language, which I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the Hebrew this book is written in is similar to First and Second Chronicles which are also dated uh, to being written in the Persian period. So we're not totally sure when this happened, when it was written. Um, as I said, lots of people have doubted its historicity, and so they think it's, it's fiction, though Esther, the book itself, seems to take itself seriously as a history book. It starts with the same Hebrew formula that begins books like Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. Um, and so whatever we think about this book, this book seems to think it's a history book. So that that's important to, to keep in mind. Um, nothing in Esther has been proven untrue, but questions have been raised on a lot of different points. Um, there's there are various discrepancies that um, are there. Um, things like names, the names of Vashti and Esther, they don't agree with Herodotus's account of who was married to Xerxes. So if we think this is Xerxes, it doesn't make sense. Um, his wife that's mentioned in Herodotus was a mistress. Um, and she was a piece of work, as we would say, in modern parlance. Um, and then the age of Mordecai doesn't exactly fit based on things that are said in the text. Um, the number of administrative regions that are mentioned, they don't fit. Um, it doesn't make sense that he would marry a Jewish woman because Persian kings usually only married women from seven specific noble families. Um, and the idea that this whole book turns on of decrees of the king being irrevocable doesn't appear. That idea doesn't appear in the extra biblical sources, really. So all of these things Which are Which I'm just really glad about that because that never made sense to me. I'm just I was just really glad to learn that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, which and the interesting thing is um, Job's kind of lands on a midway point because th what happens, all of these things are true. These discrepancies are discrepancies. They're real discrepancies. So what some people do is they try to they, they really want to see Esther as pure history. So they try to prove that it's all exactly true. Exactly as it happened. Other people say this book is great literature. So who cares if it's true? Right. Um, Job's kind of advocates acknowledging it as true because we believe that all scripture. Well, if you know, if you are um, a person who believes in the inerrant word of God, we believe that all scripture is inspired truth. Um, she says that, you know, we, we can acknowledge it as true, but we also need to remember that history was told as narrative, um, especially in ancient times, not as a just the facts kind of newspaper article. And so yeah, I mean, room, we, we even yeah. see that in the Gospels, right? Like the four Gospels don't line up exactly chronologically, but we don't think of one of them as true and the other one's false. Like we yes. understand that like they're told in a way that emphasizes the different messages. It's it's a fairly modern perspective to expect everything to be chronologically, you know, exact and precise for the sake of just chronology. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we have to leave room for poetic license. 
And that's that's what she says. And that I think is one of her best kind of arguments in her commentary is that there there can be what we perceive as discrepancies could be. She she calls it the legitimate literary use of poetic license in order to interpret the significance of what happened as he's writing it. So one example she gives of that is if you look at the names in the story, um, like the name of Vashti or the name of Esther, various people in the story have names that if you look at the translations of their names, they're, they're also kind of suggesting ideas about that person. Um, or gosh, I can't, I don't have my commentary in here. Like she says the name Vashti um, means, has a certain meaning that kind of goes with her personality as depicted in the story. Um, or Esther's name sounds a lot like Ishtar. Um, and she's a beautiful woman who, at the end of the story, superintends the killing of a whole lot of people, both of which fit with Ishtar. So she's kind of suggesting that perhaps these names that don't match the historical record, perhaps they don't match because they're, they're not the exact same names that the people had. These names are meant to suggest something about their personality. Right. Um, anyway, that's that's kind of it was an interesting theory that she put forth. We don't know if it's true. Um, couple of things and I'm going to be done because we have a lot more to talk about. Um, there are two versions of Esther, the text. Um, our, uh, the version that we tend to read, um, definitely the, in the Protestant church, but also in the, in the Catholic Bible, um, is translated from the Hebrew. There's another version that came from the Greek Septuagint that's a retelling of the Hebrew story with significant additions. There's about 107 extra verses in that one. Um, and there's a few churches in the world, um, at least one, one branch of orthodoxy that uses the, the Greek version. Um, the additions basically make explicit. So famously, the, the name of God is never mentioned in Esther. It's the only Bible book besides Song of Songs that never mentions the name of God. And this is another reason I think pastors don't like to preach from it. Um, but so the Greek version, this other version with the extra verses, basically makes it explicit. So it adds the name of God throughout the book about 50 times. Um, it also does things like it describes Esther as following the Jewish dietary laws like Daniel did. Um, and it describes her as being miserable in her new pagan home. Basically, anything that makes Esther seem kind of secular and like she's going native with the Persians is is made to seem not true. She's made to seem much, much, much more Jewish, um, faithfully Jewish. And um, uh, one other thing I want to say about that is that um, the the Greek version with all the extra stuff also includes a scene of Esther fainting when she goes to visit the king. Um, and like when she goes to the first time to go before the king unannounced, when when she sees him, he looks like angry and she gets really scared and she's oh, she faints. And when she faints, he feels sorry for her. So he that then he runs up to her and like offers her the scepter. And like, you know, like the reason that she gets a favorable reception is because she faints. This is like added in to the other version. Um, and then there's a second time she faints again later. There's lots of fainting. Well, that particular scene has been super popular throughout time in art. If you look at any painting of Esther from really, I mean, most of the paintings you see of Esther, especially in the medieval period into the early modern period, she's fainting. That's why. It's from this version That's, of the story. It's in uh, One Night with the King, too, isn't it? That, I, oh, is it? I, I, th- I believe yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very dramatic scene. Mm-hmm. Watch okay. it on YouTube if you don't watch anything else from that film. Okay, well, yeah, then, then in that case, they the, the makers of the film must have seen the drama inherent in that idea and gone for that, but, you know, because obviously it's not in the, you know, it's not in the, the version we read. But um, I I talk that through with my ladies because I always, I like to, I like to do a lot of art when I do my classes. But um, one of the reasons we always when we're talking about a biblical character, I always do lots of art history is because you can see what different time periods, what people have thought in different time periods about Bible women based on how they're depicted in art. 
Um, and you can even see mistakes. Like, you know, all, there's so many paintings that depict Mary Magdalene, like, um, naked. Because obviously she was a prostitute, you guys. Because they were all, like, misreading. <laughs> like, I mean, it was like somebody made a mistake of translation. They mixed her up with, like, Mary of Bethany. Somewhere in there, people started to think she was a prostitute. And so now today there's all these paintings of her with no clothes on. Um, you can see it. in. But um, So we looked at lots of paintings of Esther where she was painting. Um, okay, the last thing I want to say, and then I promise I'm done. I'm going to be the English professor for a minute. And we're going to just talk about literary structure of this book, um, which is masterful. Um, this book is so, the way it's structured is so intentional and it's so tight. Um, and the major kind of motif happening in this is the banquet, uh, the word mishte in Hebrew. There are many, many banquets in this book. Um, this Hebrew word appears 20 times in Esther and it only appears 24 times in the rest of the entire Old Testament. So the, the banquet is a huge, is a huge deal. Um, it begins with a banquet where Vashti is cast aside. Esther gives two different banquets for the king. Um, the whole book is read every year, like Leah mentioned, um, to celebrate the festival and, um, which is also a day of feasting and banqueting. Um, and so that is something that's happening throughout the book and you see pairs of banquets that occur. Um, which is another reason that, that I think that happens too, is that this book has a chiastic structure. Um, and chiasm is basically a situation where each element, um, in this case in the story and this, this, this book has a plot, a chiastic structure of plot. There's also such a thing as like poetic chiastic structure within individual lines, like in a poem's meter, um, like with Old English verse. And um, I think there's also, there's lots of chiastic structure in the Psalms too. But in this case, it's on the level of the plot. And a chiasm is each element corresponds to a parallel element, but in reverse order. So if you look at the banquets um, and the different things that happen in this book, you just you keep seeing very similar things happening, but in reverse. So there's a decree. There's a counter decree. There is uh, mourning. Then later, there, a different person is mourning. Um, and so it's all kind of paired. Um, and then the kind of key theme behind all of this is um, the idea of peripety, which is just a literary term for a sudden turn of events that reverses the intended and expected action. And that's the key point of this whole book is the reversal of destiny. Um, apparent disaster is looming and it is averted in the most dramatic fashion and the people are saved. Um, and that is really interesting. Also, if you map out the structure of this book, another thing that's really fascinating is that there's all these big dramatic things happening um, in the plot that Leah's going to tell us about. But the pivot point of the whole book where the chiastic structure flips and everything starts to be its mirror image is um, in chapter six when the king can't sleep one night. Like chapter six begins and one night the king couldn't sleep. And so they read him stories from his chronicles. That's the pivot point of the entire book, which is really interesting to me. Um, that's the singular event that does not have a pair. Um, so do with that what you will. But that I know that was lightning fast listeners, but that's just to give you some idea of the background of this book. Um, and before we move into the plot itself, Ailea uh, is going to give us just a little bit more um historical context and connection to some other kind of Bible books and other things like that. So can you go ahead and walk us through that? Yeah. I mean, like you said, we, we tend to learn Old Testament stories individually and completely separate from their uh, larger, how they fit into um, the timeline of the Bible and even just the timeline of history. Um, so I thought I would just kind of place it in history and you already did a little bit of this, um, but 
538 BCE when Cyrus the Great um, allowed the Israelite people to return from their exile, that was kind of um, the um, that that was a major turning point in the history of the the Jewish people because they had been taken into exile um, a couple of different times, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, um, and then they were in exile. Now they're sent back to Jerusalem. They're still under Medo-Persian rule, right? They're not they're not just turned loose to go back and be a country again. You know, they still have to you know pay taxes and everything, but they're allowed to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem. Um, and we see this in Ezra one. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these they all they all kind of deal with this same kind of post-exilic time period. And so they all are really, really connected. Um, so the beginning of Ezra one, you see this decree from Cyrus and um, they go back. Uh, a group of uh, Israelites or a group of the, the Jews go back to um, Jerusalem. Um, and then we have events of the first six chapters of Ezra. And then kind of concurrently, we have the events of Haggai and Zechariah. Um, and then the temple is rebuilt under King Darius I, who's also known as Darius the Great. Um, Darius the Great married not one, but two of King Cyrus's daughters just to, you know, just really lock in that kingship. <laughs> um, and so he becomes the next ruler. Now, this is not uh, probably the same Darius from Daniel. Um, that would be Darius the Mede. This is Darius the First or Darius the Great, um, the Persian. And it's a couple of generations after. But like you said before, um, there there's a lot of uh, kind of ambiguity around these connections. And there are people that um, have made that connection and say that it is the same person. It just depends on which timeline you're looking at, honestly. Um, but before we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the, the rest of Ezra and then Nehemiah, we have in the middle of this story, uh, the story of Esther. And it's set around like 483 to 473 B.C., um, and it's during the reign of the son of Darius the Great, King Xerxes, most likely, like you said. Um, uh, Xerxes is also mentioned in Ezra as ruling during the opposition to the temple's rebuilding. And that definitely fits with uh, some of the opposition to the Jews that we see happening in Susa and Persia. Um, so it's it's important to note, like you said, that this is taking place during a really transitional time. Um, the first group of exiles has already returned, but many have not. Um, and famously, Nehemiah has not yet. He's going to be one of the ones that leads another group to go rebuild the wall later. Um, and so in between those kind of returning groups, we have this story of Esther and Mordecai and these Jews who didn't return, who, who stayed in Susa. Now, we don't know why they didn't go. Um, and there's no judgment passed on them, notably in the story. Either way, we're not told that they were admirable for staying or that they were that there was a problem that they should have gone. Um, but it is something that every Jewish reader would have understood uh, reading this story that that these people had chosen not to go. Um, so, yeah, it should be noted that everything I just said can and has been <laughs> disputed by different historians and scholars. Um, every king seems to have at least three different names and. Uh, Every uh, and like you said, the the cultures, especially the Hebrew culture back then, was uh, focused on not necessarily chronologic or or specifically factual timelines as much as they were conveying meaning through the retelling of their events and their histories. Um, so what I gave is just kind of a generally accepted timeline, but it's definitely not you know definitive. Um, and there's also one more interesting tie. Um, the Book of Esther has ties all the way back to First Samuel. Um, because it's going to reference uh, King Agag. Uh, Haman is called an Agagite, um, which is actually part of the Amalekites 
whom uh, King Saul famously did not wipe out when he was supposed to. Um, and it actually mentions that Mordecai was a descendant of Kish. Um, Kish was King Saul's father, so there's some tie-ins um, to, to 1 Samuel 2. So it's a very interesting book. It really stands kind of, like I said, at the turning point in, in history between kind of the old world and then, you know, the post-exilic period. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, and that that helps a ton to kind of place it um, in the context. And one thing that I, I, I found really interesting, too, when I was studying for the classes, when you, you were talking about Ezra and Nehemiah and the different waves of going back, so much attention in scripture is given to those events um, because it was it was huge, um, you know, them being allowed to go back to the land and rebuild the temple. But um, one of my commentators pointed out that if you think about that time in the wider world and everything that was happening, that really wasn't very important on a, on the world scale. Like, there, you know, um, it gets so much attention in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's kind of interesting. And um, so Esther is almost like Esther is kind of a story that's happening, you know, not in the thick of that. Right. It's a story that's happening elsewhere, you know, um, in a similar kind of area. But nevertheless, not fo- it's a story of the same time period, but not focused on the temple, not fixated on the temple the way that those other books are. And it, it makes it kind of interesting. Yeah, that uh, does. Well, um, we before we go any further, we're going to go through just the story. Leah is going to take us through the story of Esther and just hit the highlights of the plot so that as we move forward and have our more free kind of discussion time, listeners will know kind of where we're coming from and um, and what the basics of the story are. Sure. Um, So as you all know, or can tell from what we've said so far, there's just a lot that goes into this book. Um, But the book of Esther starts with a banquet held by the Persian king. So whoever that Persian king is, we don't know. uh, But that's not really what's the most important. What is important is that this banquet went on for days. And anyone who is anyone within the king's court was there except for Queen Vashti, who is having her own banquet. Um, So seven days into this huge feast, the king, who is merry with wine, calls for Vashti to come in her royal crown to parade her beauty in front of his guests. She refuses, and that does make our poor king angry. Uh, He then consults with his advisors. And together they agree that Vashti is now out. She's no longer to be queen and a new queen needs to be found. So then all the eligible virgins throughout the empire are gathered together and brought to the king's harem. And this is where we meet Esther and her esteemed guardian Mordecai. Uh, They are within the city of Susa. And Esther is brought into the harem, and she wins the regard of everyone she meets. So when it's her time to have that night with the king, she gains the admiration of him and is made queen. Uh, After this, uh, Mordecai, who is a courtier, he overhears uh, a plot to assassinate the king. And he then tells Esther who warns the king uh, and Mordecai's name is entered into the public record as having saved the king's life. Sometime later, the king promotes a man, Haman, the Agagite, to the position of vizier. Uh, Haman demands that people bow down to him 
and everyone except Mordecai obeys. And that really makes Haman angry, who now starts plotting revenge. Uh, he knows that Mordecai is a Jew, so he decides that the best revenge is to destroy all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. Uh, of course, when Mordecai hears of this, he goes into mourning and he asks Esther to intercede on their behalf with the king. So Esther, risking her life, goes to the king uninvited. Um, it was a death sentence to go to the king uninvited. But she wins his favor, and then she invites him and the vizier Haman to a private dinner party the next day. That night, there's a lot going on, but that night, the king can't sleep. Um, so he requests that the records of the kingdom be read to him. And when that is done, he is read the story about the assassination that Mordecai warned of. And he realizes he never thanked Mordecai. So the next day, the king decides to honor Mordecai uh, and asks his trusted vizier Haman how um, a man that he delights to honor should be honored. And so in a fun twist of fate, Haman gets to do all the things that he wanted to Mordecai. Um, so Haman leads Mordecai throughout the city of Susa with Mordecai clothed in one of the king's robes and sitting on one of the king's horses. And Haman is the one who has to proclaim that this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Um, that night, uh, they have dinner with Esther and the king offers anything she she wants up to half the kingdom. It's a very romantic gesture. And she invites them back to dinner again a second night. And at the second dinner, the king again offers up to half the kingdom, whatever she wants. And this is when she strikes. She uncovers Haman's plot to destroy her and all the Jews. Uh, and the king, rightfully so, uh, is furious with Haven. Uh, he imprisons him, gives the king's signet to Esther and Mordecai, charging them to send out an order under his name to protect their people. And I'm going to make a long story short. Haman is then executed. The enemies of the Jews are destroyed. Uh, Mordecai becomes the vizier, the second man to the king. And the book ends with the institution of the Festival of Purim to commemorate all of these events. Thank you so much. Um, you hit all the all the most important bits, um, and that's going to be a really great kind of jumping off point for the rest of our discussion. So we're going to move now into um, well, the section we call reading, which I always think of it as discussion time because it's the kind you know when I do class discussion this is like these are the kind of questions I ask um so we're just going to kind of talk a little bit uh about this book um this is not going to be very formal because I realize the first half of this episode has been pretty formal um and there's been a lot of historical detail and the first question I wanted to ask is um about who uh who is the true main character of this book or um about focus, I suppose. Um, so the book is called Esther, 
But if you look at where the author places focus, it could just as easily have been called Mordecai. Um, her name is mentioned about 54 times in this book, and his is mentioned about 50 or 52 times. I can't remember exactly. Um, and so that's my first question is, oh, and one other interesting detail. One of my commentators said that they had asked their seminary students, who's the main character of Esther? And half of the students said Esther, and the other half said Mordecai. <laughs> so, um, you know, it could go either way. Um, so my first question is, why do you think, given this really very even focus between these two people who are kind of co-protagonists, why do you think this book only gets taught to women? Because of the title. I, yeah, it's it's one of the two main women <laughs> who have books named after them in the Bible. So I would I would agree with that. Obviously, it's for women. I feel like you could take the same you could take this book and, and literally just change the title. And if you called it Mordecai, I guarantee you there would be men's Bible studies called Mordecai. I agree with that 100 percent. Yeah, like I think that it should be called. Same. Yeah, I think that the text should be called Purim. And then the and I think that the main character is Mordecai. And I think that if you presented it that way, there would be preaching it from the pulpit. Which is which is frustrating. Yes. <laughs> like, um, it will. And, you know, and I had but I mean, and I, I say that I, I don't necessarily need to hate on, you know, other people for perceiving it that way, though, because I never because it's called Esther and because it only gets taught to women, I had never noticed just how prominent Mordecai was in the text until I studied it to teach it. Like I, because I, I hadn't sat down and read it that closely, you know. Yeah, um, if when you it, read it, yeah. like the, like you were talking about, like the chiasm, like it begins, middle, and ends with Mordecai. Like he is the central figure at each of those very important points in the, you know, the structure of the story. And even if you do read it that Aster is the main character, a lot of the driving force behind her arc is Mordecai. Yeah, he's yeah, the one that tells totally. her not to say that she's a Jew. Um, he's the one who tells her about the assassination and mm -hmm. yeah, just a lot of what happens in her story is because of him. Yeah, that's very true. And that's something I think that's interesting too, is that, you know, you don't, um, you don't hear about his influence, even though you're right, Leah, he's, he's so much what, of what is driving the plot. But at the same time, sometimes you'll see, I've seen I saw in some some different commentaries where Esther will sometimes be chided um, for things that she does in the story, things that he told her to do. So it's like he's he's not always given his due for what, how how important he is in the story. But also sometimes I think she's sometimes like there some especially old fashioned commentators really don't like that she's deceptive, for example, or that she hides her mm -hmm. identity. Um, but I was reading one of one of my commentators and he's going on about how she's deceptive. And I'm and, and I'm like yelling at the book. He told her to do that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Her her revered guardian told her to do this. And so, you know, that's overlooking his contribution in a way that makes Esther look bad, which is isn't doesn't seem cool. That's that that doesn't seem fair. You know, and to be clear, it is considered a women's book or more of a women centered book in like modern Christian circles that in the Jewish community, it is not considered a women's book. It is something that the entire community gets together and has a big party and reads out loud and, you know, drinks until you're drunk and booze Haman every time his name comes up. And like it, it, it is it is seen very differently in in that culture versus in our uh, evangelical Christian culture. Yeah, that's that's thank you so much for saying that, because that's a, that's really important. Actually, our last class that we did yesterday 
I had um, printed out a couple of songs, uh, perm songs, and we just kind of read them out loud. We didn't sing them <laughs> because we don't know the tune. Um, but it was interesting reading those because in both of the ones that we read in our class yesterday, they were mostly about Mordecai. Um, Esther was mentioned, but it was interesting. not. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, so because the two main things, the two main kind of refrains in the first one that we read were blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. Like those were the two kind of complementary phrases. And so uh, I found that interesting. Um, do you think what lessons and this is just because I'm curious to see what you guys would say. What lessons do you think this book would hold for men were they to sit down and study it? I think it holds the exact same lessons for men that it does for women. And I think that question is so interesting because like for most of the Bible, when it is centered around men, I as a woman am asked to superimpose myself into those situations and figure out, even though the story is about a man, how can I as a woman find something to take out of it and learn from it? And yet men are never asked to do that. Mm, like yeah. men, men don't look at Proverbs 31 and try to figure out, you know, what it says for them, even though like 90% of the rest of the Proverbs are specifically written to, you know, my son um, and about like prostitutes and stuff. And yet I, as a woman, am still supposed to try to impose what I can about like the lessons I'm supposed to learn. So I, I think it's really interesting that we ask, you know, what, what lessons could this book hold for men? Because like you said, first of all, it's just as much about men as it is women. But second of all, even if there were no men in the entire story, it still would have things to tell because God is working in the lives of women, just like he is in the lives of men. That's so true. That's a great point. Um, Leah, did you have anything else to say about that particular idea? I kind of wanted to shout, preach it while <laughs> I was talking there. Um, yeah, I mean, I had some of the same thoughts about, well, why, why can't, guys just learn the same things about women from women uh but maybe to go more specifically to answer the question um if you have to like take a lesson or a moral out of it a lot of it is just about doing the hard thing kind of standing up to our loved ones or an authority figure for what is right and that is something that anyone can use and apply. Um, although I think that is a good one for women to take away uh, from Esther. I think I think if I was gonna if I was gonna try to to pull out like if I was if I was talking to my son, which I'm, I mean my sons are too small right now, but um, if I was gonna try to because you're right, Leah, everybody can learn from this book. But if I was forced to do a man specific lesson, I think I think one of the best ones that you could give is that this book shows us the the ways that men and women can work together for the kingdom and cooperation. Because he Mordecai tells Esther to, you know, he begins the story kind of giving her directives, you know, hide your identity. OK, now do this. Um, OK, now you need to stand up for us. Um, but once she makes her decision to take the risk and intercede for the people at that point it almost flips and she starts telling him to do things and she's you know she says things like i want you to call fast for me mm -hmm. and um and so for the second half of the story at least until the king gives him the signet ring um for a good portion of the second half of the story there it, it's a flip-flop and she is kind of giving him instructions and he's carrying them out and so i think and i think you can see that the fact that they're mentioned equally and that they almost function as co-protagonists in the story really shows you that they're working in cooperation 
um, and they need each other. Each one needs the other. Um, and I think that that is one of the best applications from this book is um, another thing that I think is really great. That is a useful lesson for men and women from this book. And this is not original to me. I, t- I can't take credit for it. I think it was Jobs who said this, but she talks about this book as um, honoring the laity um, and how lay people in the church contribute to kingdom work of the Lord, because Mordecai is not a priest and he's not a prophet. Um, you know, Esther's not, uh, you know, she's not a judge like Deborah. Um, or a prophetess like Hulda, you know, she's not in the line of Jesus, like somebody like Ruth. These are just lay people um, that God uses through their human actions to save all these, all these uh, Jews. And I thought that was a great lesson too. I really appreciated that. And something that hadn't occurred to me before, because often when this book gets taught, the main application that gets taught is be bold, you know, don't be afraid to, to stand up, which is a great lesson. I mean, that's really important. Um, But there's so much more that you can take um, from that. Um, well, let me let me move to kind of our second, which and this is more CFP specific, um, more like, you know, some of the things that we often talk about. Um, so throughout to, to sound like my freshman students in their essays throughout history, um, feminist reactions to this book have been mixed over time. Um, so way back in the 19th century in uh, the woman's Bible, Elizabeth Cady Stanton commended both Vashti and Esther um, for different reasons. And uh, more and, and actually another interesting 19th century perspective, right while turn of the century, um, Abraham Kuyper and his woman of the Old Testament, he has a lot of great things to say about Vashti and doesn't like Esther. But that's because he uh, and you can read in all in, in his books about women of the Bible, you can see it throughout all of his um, profiles. He prizes um, courage most in women, like physical, like um, showy courage. So Vashti saying, no, I won't come in there he feels like is much more noble than Esther kind of hiding her identity and joining the King's harem and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, more recently in the re- more recent past, um, some interpreters, uh, Job's mentions Alice, La- Alice Laffey, um, have contrasted Vashti's quote, refusal to be men's sexual object with Esther's apparent compliance with the patriarchy. Those are, those are, uh, Laffey's words. So my question for you is just, kind of thinking through that kind of spectrum of idea, what, which view do you take? Um, you know, is Esther kind of um, going along to get along? Is she compliant with the patriarchy? Should we, um, to some degree, kind of um, judge her a little bit for that? Or is she someone we should look up to as Christian feminist? Or what, and I, or do you take another view entirely? That's, that's kind of what I wanted to, to, to ask you guys next. So whoever has thoughts about that can go first. I have lots um, of thoughts, but I want Leah to go first this time because I feel like I'm jumping in first. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts as well. I, I mean, we often hear Vashti and Esther kind of set up as foils for each other when, quite honestly, they are very, very similar. So both Vashti and Esther were in the harem at some point. We don't know much about Vashi, so she might have been concealing some part of her identity, too. It's not fair for us to judge her for that. Um, But also, they both have these very strong uh, moments of courage where they do go against the norm. Vashti ends up with her being thrown aside, and Esther gets a lovely dinner party out of it. Um, So I, I don't... necessarily think that one of these readings is more correct than the other. I think there's something to be said from most of these interpretations. Um, 
So I would probably approach this from a completely different path, which is more to, uh, <laughs> quite honestly, glare at the male author. And I'll explain what I mean by that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, like Vashti and Esther are two wonderful women who are actually named in the Bible, who are in this wonderful, dramatic, powerful story of um, God's plan at work, right? Even if we don't have God named, we can see him acting throughout this story uh, and throughout the through these women. But as we've already talked about, there's a lot of Mordecai in this book. There's not much about these women. We hear just little snips and pieces about what they say and what they do. And it's all filtered through a very male perspective, very blatantly male perspective. I think that's safe to say. Um, and we don't really get to see these women or what's driving them or what is Esther thinking when she asks for a three-day fast. Um, so I, I kind of think that we're doing these women a disservice to judge them as, without actually getting to know them because we can't know them through this text. Uh, I, I ended up reading Esther in preparation for this podcast uh, three times from three different uh, biblical translations. Um, and after every single time at the end, I was just so mad at the author. I was just, whoever he may be, I was very angry at him because I wanted to know Esther more. Do you think, and, and I, I mean, I wonder which, and, and not to give any kind of credit on that front, because you're right, I think much more could have been said, but do we think there's any, that to, to any degree that the, the kind of experiences of these women as they were happening, if it's a historical story, were unknowable because they were so closeted in the harem though? Like, does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, because we know Esther's, I mean, she she doesn't even know about the decree, the death decree, when it first goes out because she's so isolated. And so I wonder, I don't know, which I mean, and that I get maybe that's maybe that's giving too too much credit. I don't think he's trying to suggest her isolation by not saying more about her. But I do I do wonder to what degree um, her perspective might be missing somewhat because she was literally not you know, she was just gone. I mean, she wasn't present. Um, and so later he's reporting the things that she did, but would, would there have been, you know, a way to know what she's thinking? I don't know. I, I, I was just, I, I was struck by the isolation when I read it again this time. That's a good call out. I'm not sure. Like, could Esther read and write? Or was she close to somebody who could? We know that she sent, I mean, she sends messages yeah, via various, messages. various eunuchs. Uh, we don't know that she, if she, did she write the messages? I'm not sure. I don't think, I don't know that it says it does say that she wrote the final decree though, the second decree or the second letter um, at the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's um, that just, you know, the, the, the whole women's world was just so completely separate. Um, there's nothing like the, 
the conversation or nothing like the kind of interchange that happens between, for example, Jesus and various female followers in the New Testament, right? Like, um, or even, you know, some of the women earlier in the Old Testament in the time of the patriarchs, you know, who were living. Um, I mean, even, you know, a lot of times people like to take, um, want to take examples uh, for how wives should act from Esther, which is nonsense because it's not as if they were living as a married couple. They weren't living right. as a married couple. He's she was living harem, literally there. Yes. She's living in the harem. I mean, like she doesn't even see him unless he wants her to show up. And we know that actually right before all this drama goes down, he's maybe been cooling on her because she hasn't seen him for like 30 days. So, you know, I just the 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 isolation, um, her isolation this time when I was reading through and studying, it made me sad. Like, I remember thinking because we know I mean, she has all these women who are her ladies, because when she says fast, me and my ladies are also going to fast. Presumably, these ladies are fasting with her just because she asks them to. I don't think that we're meant to buy that to assume that these are Jewish women who are with her. So she's like a lone Jewish woman in this harem, mm-hmm. Persian harem. Um, her isolation is just kind of unbelievable. Um, but I, I would agree with you, Leah, that I, I, I always want more, more about the women um, because you don't have any sense. Um, one of the things that I read and it blew my mind is um, I think it was Job said that if 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 Ahasuerus is Xerxes, and if therefore if Vashti is um, Amestris, his, his his historical wife, she would have been when when and if this all these are ifs, right? All these are ifs. Then that would have meant that this huge banquet he throws is probably a banquet he was throwing to drum up like financial support and morale for his big <laughs> campaign with the Greeks he was about to undertake. If all those things are right, then sh- then then Vashti Amestris would have been hugely pregnant with Artaxerxes when she was commanded to show herself before everybody show off her beauty before everybody. Um, And I was like, okay, that puts a whole new layer on all of it. Like, um, but you know, because again, it just shows that like, I mean, if, if, if that was the situation that even being about to bear the future, you know, King doesn't mean that you get let off for being an object. Like, you know, I mean, you're still can still be commanded to appear that whole first scene. I was going to say that whole first scene has shades of taming of the shrew, but no taming of the shrew has shades of Esther. Right. Um, because that's was way later. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, uh, so Ilya, you said you had many thoughts. I want to hear all of them. Tell me your thoughts. Yeah. So I will admit first that for a while I would gladly have said that Vashti was feminism goals. Um, there was a period when I, I thought that um, my modern sensibilities really want this to be a story about like female empowerment and centering women in a narrative. Uh, but I really don't think that's a faithful reading of the text. Um, I think it's a mistake to look at any of the characters in this book as some kind of like universal role models or profiles in virtue. Um, that's a pretty common approach to, you know, a lot of the Old Testament that I call it the Veggie Talesification uh, of Bible stories. And and Phil Vischer, the creative creator of Veggie Tales, will will back me up on this. Um, the kind of uh, pitfall of looking for some character trait or moral that we can learn from each story, and that's really a disservice to the actual story that we have here. Um, God is the main character of this book, just like he's in a character of the Bible. And we're meant yep. to watch him work with, through, and in spite of these people, um, both the Jews and the Gentiles. And and so we can't get caught up in whether or not, you know, Vashti was a girl power icon or Esther was submissive because we're going to miss that. We're, um, Christopher Ashe, the commentator, says, uh, quote, if we read Esther wanting to find studies of godly or an ungodly character, and I'll add feminist and unfeminist as well, uh, we have to do the modern equivalent of what the Septuagint did in their editions. Uh, we have to impose on the book clarifications. And, and I just think that 
um, by that point, our reading is going to say more about us than it says about God or what the author was trying to say about God. I also think... I also just, this is side point, but I also think it's problematic to say this is a feminist book if you go like one inch below the surface. Um, Esther's just barely shy of being sex trafficked, and Vashti's refusal causes repercussions for women throughout the known world that really just get kind of dropped in the middle of a conversation and then never mentioned again. There's this decree about women having to like submit to their husbands, and um, the, the, the other women who were part of this kind of beauty contest are just basically brought in as sex slaves to the harem for the rest of their lives. Uh, so I don't know that we want to hold any of this up as some kind of feminist achievement, you know. Um, but one thing I do specifically love about this book from a feminist perspective is that we get to see a woman, Esther, be a prefigure of Christ. Uh, she's a mediator and an intercessor for her people. She's willing to be numbered with them and plead before the king on their behalf, even at the cost of her life. And those are all echoes of the work of Jesus in his mediation and his sacrifice for us. And to me, it's really encouraging to see a woman being used uh, to foreshadow that, to, to be a type of Christ. That's kind of unusual uh, compared to the many men in the Old Testament who are usually painted as the types of Christ. So it just reiterates what we've already been saying, that that's one of the central themes of the book is that God can and will use anyone for his purposes. And I think that that's really meaningful. That's amazing. Um, I love that. Well, and that, that actually, that's a perfect transition to our final question, um, which you just told us, but we'll see if anybody else has any other ways to say it. What lessons then can we take from a book that never mentions God? That's my final question. So do you want to keep elaborating on what you already said? Yeah, yeah, because I think that the fact that God isn't mentioned is the actual point. I, I think it's a feature, not a bug. I think like these people were living in exile, waiting for God's voice. They felt far from him, far from home. They wondered, you know, if he had abandoned them or rejected them. I mean, they they broke the covenant. So there's this kind of question hanging of did we finally go too far and and have we been cast aside? And so here in this story, it makes clear that God is at work, even in the middle of this exile in the middle of their sufferings and it it teaches them and it teaches us that we can look for his hand even when we can't hear his voice and I think that's really important and I also love how flawed the characters are in this story like we've already kind of talked about this like they're not doing what Daniel did in exile right they're eating from royal banquet food and they're sleeping with uncircumcised Gentiles and they're hiding their worship of the Lord and they're breaking the laws you know these are morally ambiguous characters but they're trying their best to honor the Lord and protect their people. And I love that. I love seeing God use these imperfect people. Um, and because as much as I love like the Josephs and the Ruths who inspire us to be our best for the Lord, I also love like the Esthers and the Mordecais who remind us that we can do great things for God, even when we feel like we're just a mess. Amen. Um, Leah, how Amen. about you? I mean, I love everything that Leah just said, um, but I'm also going to, throw out the word that came up a lot in my reading in prep for this, which was providence. Um, like this story is just a, a wonderful way of seeing God's hand at work, right? God working in mysterious ways through overheard conversations and it, in ways that we wouldn't normally think of that we just don't see in other books of the Bible. Um, and because this is written almost like a novella, if I'm honest, um, it, it drives home kind of what you were saying earlier, Katie, about 
the layman being part of the kingdom of God and having those important roles within uh, God's great plan. Um, these are just everyday people. This is just another story, but we can see how everything turned out the way it was supposed to because God was using each little situation, each dramatic uh, secret conversation um, got turned around into the kind of bloody and uh, and yet peaceful <laughs> uh, ending uh, with this wonderful celebration at the end. Yeah, I think that um, I, I like that you mentioned God working in the little moments. Um, I think that often, like you guys were saying before, we're, we're, we're kind of um, encouraged to be an Esther or we're encouraged to take exemplary, the exemplary approach and try to be, you know, to be like these people. Um, and it is one of the huge lessons of this book that God can use anyone through regular human actions. Right. This is not a big miracle like the Red Sea. People are just doing stuff and God's working behind it. Um, and actually, the, my class this time, I called it God's hidden hand in history, because that's really what it is. Um, you know, from the outside, you know, God's not doing these things. The people are doing these things. But the, but the amazing thing is that if you pay attention to the book, um, you see all the little moments, like you mentioned, where, um, like Aaliyah said, it, it's clear that God's the main character of the book because the turning point of the whole book is the night when the king couldn't sleep. Right. That's not anything to do with what Esther's doing. That's not something Mordecai's doing. That's purely something that seems like chance. Right. He happens to not be able to sleep. So he asks him to read the history books because, of course, that's going to put him to sleep. And he finds out, oh, no, I never honored Mordecai. That was like a couple years ago. This is terrible. Which when I was reading the historical stuff, apparently that was highly unusual. Apparently the normal thing to happen is that when somebody did a favor for the king, he immediately reciprocated that person handsomely because that's how you kept people loyal. By I'm so glad you brought that up because I was about to say the same thing. Like it's just one coincidence after another, right? Like one yeah. unusual circumstance after another yes. that, oh, he just happened to have forgotten that and then just happened to remember it the night before, you know, like yep. one yep. after another, these little dominoes of quote unquote coincidence, which as Leah said, are actually providence. Exactly. And that's what we look for. These little movements of God's hand. Yes. Yes. And my other, my other favorite thing about, about this book is that, um, you talked about Esther as a, a type of Christ, and I love that. And another thing that I um, I read, and um, and I can't remember if this was Job's or Duguid, who's a different commentator that I read, but one of them just blew my mind because, you know, we, again, we might read the story and identify with Esther. We might identify with Mordecai. I think often, probably inaccurately, Americans, we like to identify with the Jews in all circumstances, right? We like to think of ourselves as, like, <laughs> yep. God's people. Um, but Whichever commentator it was who made this point um, said, you know, we, we can identify with the Jews in the story, but not as like brave people who are going to stand up for ourselves like Esther, but as people who are under a decree of death and who need the counter decree to save us. Right. We're we're under a decree of death because mm. of our sin. And Jesus's work on the cross is the counter decree. That's what undoes it. It undoes our doom you know, and brings about that great reversal for us. That's great. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way. And that just like ripped through my mind the day I read it. I was like, man, I, you know, that never, it hadn't occurred to me to interpret the story that way. Um, 
And so I just, uh, yeah, I have, I have a whole new respect for and love for this book, having spent the, the last nine weeks studying. Um, and it's just been, um, it's just been such a joy. Um, and it, do you guys have any, before we move on to passing on any final comments about anything to do with Esther that we didn't already say that you really wanted to say? I'm good. I think I'm good too. Awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to our passing on section and make some recommendations tonight. And we will start with uh, Leah. Sure. Um, so my recommendation is the Women's Bible Commentary, which is edited by Carol A. Newsom and Sharon H. Ring. Um, this uh, book was published, I believe, in the 90s, so it has been around for a little while. Um, but I do think that it is a wonderfully balanced egalitarian Bible commentary. Um, if you want more of a female theological perspective um, uh, and, and something that I like uh, about this commentary is that it does highlight passages with their significance to women, both with the presence of women and the absence of women. Um, so I, I have taken to just use it whenever I am reading in my Bible, uh, just to get a different perspective, since a lot of the commentaries out there um, tend to be more complementarian uh, and tend to be more uh, male voiced. Thank you so much. Um, sounds fascinating. All right, uh, Leah, or I, Leah, how about you? Um, I'm going to recommend the Bible Project video on Esther. Um, the Bible Project is a, it's two guys who started making these videos that are a combination of um, sketch, kind of drawn graphics, and then this theological presentation. Um, and that sounds really boring, but they're actually really great. Uh, we did a, a Sunday school one time uh, with using these as an uh, Old Testament survey. And um, they just do, they're like five to 10 minute videos. Um, and they go through this overview of each of the books. They have some that are just on different Hebrew words. They have all these different ones. But I love the one on Esther because it specifically highlights several of the things that you highlighted, especially like the structure. Uh, they're really big into looking at kind of the, the structure of the text and the placing it in history, placing it in context with other books, and then giving a really solid kind of theological thematic approach to the basic ideas in the, the book all in like seven minutes with cool drawings. So um, I, I highly recommend the, the Bible Project video on Esther and the other ones. They're all really, really great and a good supplement to any Bible study. Thanks so much. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, I think that that's going to be something that's going to be really useful with my kids, too, as they get a little bit bigger um, to be able to follow. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm recommending um, big surprise. I'm going to recommend uh, the NIV application commentary on Esther by Karen Jobes, who I mentioned about a million times tonight. Um, it's incredible. Um, unlike a lot of commentaries, which sometimes seem to be written by pastors for pastors and so are heavy on application, or, you know, ways you could talk, you know, I don't know, ways you could you could make comparisons to regular life. Um, Job's did her dissertation on the book of Esther and it shows. And I really appreciate this um, this book. Uh, she delves into tons of historical uh, 
context. Every she kind of takes the book chapter by chapter, but for each chapter, she kind of um, walks through what's happening in that chapter, and then she talks about what she calls bridging context, which are extra information from the time period. And then there's even another layer um, of context, and then she finally gets to contemporary significance, is what she calls it, application for now, right? But not until she's been through all these other things. Um, and I found that to be incredibly helpful to me as a teacher, but I know it's not just helpful for teachers because some of my ladies in my class actually, I kept talking about this commentary and a lot of them actually purchased it and they found it really useful too as students in, in my class. So it's not something that's written in a tone that only like theology professors will understand. Um, I, her writing style is very, um, very, very readable. Um, but she doesn't dumb it down at all. And there's tons of information. I mean, really, I I had two or three different commentaries. And by the time I finished my nine week class, I was mostly only using Job's um, because she just gave so much more. She had everything that was in the other commentaries, plus a whole bunch of extra stuff that nobody else ever even mentioned. Um, so that's my uh, recommendation is the NIV application commentary on Esther by Karen Job's. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us with our discussion of Esther. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminine Podcast in general. We really appreciate you, especially if you're a repeat listener. We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle um, at CH Radio Network. And uh, you can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Uh, for Leah Flanagan and Aaliyah Danner-Grubbs, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we're going to be talking about female antiheroes and popular culture. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.